1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. This is John McMahon, one of your co-hosts on the channel. Today I'm speaking with Ziza Al Hebri, who is Professor Emerit of Law at the University of Richmond School of Law and the founder of Karama, Muslim Women Lawyers for Human Rights. And we're here to discuss her book, The Islamic Worldview, Islamic Jurisprudence, and American Muslim Perspective, Volume One. And this really fascinating, very detailed book, she addresses, as she says on page four, the challenging question, quote, is practicing Islam in the American diaspora identical to its practice in other countries, or must a new Islamic jurisprudence be developed that takes into account the culture, customs, and laws of this country? And so from there, al Hebrew we's through a very impressive array of different modes throughout the text. She kind of sets this question of authenticity and diaspora in the opening parts of the book. From there, she moves on to discuss the basic building blocks and foundations of Islamic law and jurisprudence in a number of different forms. From there, she moves forward to kind of discuss the overall general Islamic worldview that she identifies. And finally, the concluding few chapters take up the specific issue of gender and of women's rights within Islam. Now, as she says early in the book, and as her and I discuss early on in the interview, she intends for this book to be meaningful and important, both for those who have a background in Islam and those who have very little or no background in Islam, and in my opinion at least, she certainly achieves this task. Now, I'd certainly urge all of the listeners to go out and get a copy of the book and read through it on their own, and in the meantime, I hope that this interview provides some information and some context for so it is a very impressive, very detailed, very thoughtful and well-argued book. Thanks, and enjoy. Joining me now is Dr. Aziza Al-Hibri Esquire, who is Professor Emerita of Law at the University of Richmond School of Law and founder and chair of the group Karama, Muslim Women Lawyers for Human Rights. She's also the author of the book we'll be discussing today, The Islamic Worldview, Islamic Jurisprudence and American Muslim Perspective, Volume 1. Dr. Al-Hibri, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today.
0: Uh, Thank you for inviting me.
1: Um, I'm hoping we could perhaps start by having you tell us a bit about your background, um, your academic background, as well as your legal and advocacy work with Karama, and then how those backgrounds kind of brought you to this particular project.
0: Okay, I have sort of a checkered background in that I've been a philosophy professor, a law professor, and a Wall Street lawyer at one point of my life. I came from Beirut, Lebanon, uh, to do my uh, graduate studies in the United States in philosophy and in particularly in logic. Um, I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania and then went to teach uh, philosophy and, and feminism among other things, ethics and so on and logic at the uh, uh, texas uh, a m university uh, that after some years, I decided that I really needed to do something else with uh, with my education. I was very happy writing about feminist issues, but I couldn't see where I was changing things on the ground. And I thought that maybe um, a degree in law would help me, uh, perhaps influence the law in some country, in some place. So I went back to law school after I had spent some years teaching Uh, ended up again at the University of Pennsylvania where I took my law degree and then I decided to find out how the real world works in terms of patriarchy and I spent a few years on Wall Street. After that, and it was a very valuable experience, I went to teach at the University of Richmond Law and I um, spent there 20 years until I got retired. Now, throughout those 20 years, And even before, ever since I actually set foot in the United States in 1966, when the women's movement was being very active, um, I became very interested in women's issues from uh, an American perspective. As a child, I was already very interested in these issues in Lebanon. And so I continued addressing them. And... uh, in the in the 80s already, I started writing about issues in Islam and gender, um, and then I realized that there's a lot of material that needs to be studied uh, in Islamic jurisprudence and critiqued because most uh, uh, people, not just women, thought it was what Islam taught when in fact it was what patriarchal interpretation taught. And that's what got me to this place.
1: Right. Now, you emphasize in the book itself that you wrote it for people regardless of whether or not they had any sort of background in Islamic studies or in Islamic jurisprudence. Um, Why was that important to you as you worked on this book?
0: Well, that is very important. I taught uh, Islamic law at uh, the law school for many years. And uh, part of my experience was that some Muslim students would come to take the class with the belief that it would be an easy class for them because they're Muslims and they know what Islam is about. That, they were sometimes more difficult students because I had to disabuse them of what they thought they knew about the religion. So I decided that if I'm going to write about Islam, I need to have a common uh, base from which uh, I can move on, something that we all agree upon. And that is why this first book is really very important. It lays the foundations of what Islam uh, really is, not what patriarchy tells us what Islam is, but how Islam talks about itself through the Qur'an, through the Prophet, and even through some ancient scholars. Um, And that comes as a big shock to many Muslims, not only to non-Muslims. And my book is as much directed to Muslims of the new generation who need to understand their religion as it is meant to be, not as certain political influences or patriarchal influences have interpreted it to be for them. To be able to do that, and you're a philosopher, and I am too, you really have to go through serious critique with an immense number of footnotes and resources. You cannot do it through uh, waving your hand or so, some magic trick. It is what we call in Islam fiqh or jurisprudence, Islamic jurisprudence, which is uh, mainly logic as combined with the tradition of the religion not many people even among the men have been able to do this um in a way that i find uh sufficiently satisfactory so i decided to do it myself and anyone who would like to contest what i'm doing will have to look at my arguments and will have to look at my footnotes just like we do in philosophy and tell me what is the matter how am i wrong how are they right and uh I think unless they can do that, uh, they will have to accept the foundation that I laid down. And I have given lectures about these foundations in many places. And, you know, even in the most conservative, they have to accept it. Because I start from a point of view, from a position where if you don't agree with it, you're not a Muslim. And that's the unity of God.
1: Right. And I want to get into talking about that particular principle, um, perhaps a bit later in the interview. One of the really interesting things I think you just said is this question of how are you able to speak to, as you called it, a new generation um, of Muslims. And specifically, it seems like in the book, um, Muslims living and practicing in the West. Um, so when you were hoping you could maybe tell us but why you think there's such a vital need to integrate um, the lives and religion of Muslims living and practicing in the West in developing a more broad conception of an Islamic worldview or of Islamic jurisprudence?
0: Well, first of all, it's not at all directed specifically to young young people in the West. Uh, through Karama, which has this a uh, summer uh, law and leadership summer school, which brings p- women from all over the world—literally from all over the world—the uh, class is small, and we can concentrate on these women who are leaders in their country—in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, in the United States. Put them all together. Each one of them has a certain view of Islam based on its own her own culture, as opposed to uh, the religion. And then, when you put them all together in this crucible, they have to think. Uh, uh, you know, carefully about, you know, what is it we believe in and uh, what is the basics of Islam as opposed to patriarchal cu- culture and so on. And we have been able, actually, we've been invited to countries where we were asked to give some of these lectures, where women asked us, for example, to look at some of the laws in those countries, uh, uh, for example, domestic violence laws or personal status uh, codes. So how much effect in the end we've had, the question is not... Uh, whether the women uh, believed in what we were saying, it's whether the men who had the control, say, in the parliament or elsewhere, were willing to go uh, the the extra yard that the women wanted to go. So it's always, in the end, a game of power. But we know that a lot of women are listening to us, are reading, are talking to us. They come to us also with their problems. For example, at Karama, we now... Uh, help them with uh, issues of family law and domestic violence. <laughs> but in the U.S., that's where I live. I live in the U.S. I meet a lot of women who come to me with their problems. Um, and they think that maybe the problem is that uh, they are living in the West. <laughs> that maybe, um, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile Islamic values with Western values? <clears throat> And the answer, uh, and I I mentioned that in the beginning of the book, it depends what kind of values we're talking about. Personal values are one thing, but if you were talking about political values like constitutional issues, democracy, etc., which a lot of people have been talking about, I wrote an article about it over 20 years ago to say that in my view, the first democratic system (coughs) that was... uh, ever, in, you know, uh, not ever, but that was introduced into Islamic uh, societies, was in Medina at the time of the Prophet. Democracy is not something new uh, in Islam, but it has been hidden from view by all the autocratic and, and uh, authoritarian uh, rules that came after the death of the prophet and the four guy, uh, rightly guided caliphs. So nobody wants to talk about that. Nobody wants to say that Islam was hijacked a, a, a whole long time ago, over a thousand, few hundred years ago. Um, but we need to go back to that point. We need to get back to the true message of Islam, which is based on the equality of all beings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then we come to the personal. And then women think that, uh, you know, they have a subservient position, for example, in the home. They have been told they do. And they're told that if they're good, faithful Muslims, uh, they should behave that way. They should be obedient, uh, things like that. I don't see that in the book I read, my Qur'an. In the Qur'an, it says we're all equal and we're all created of the same soul, Nats, or or spirit. I should say, uh, and so you know, I need to reach these women who are around me and with me to empower them, so that they know that Islam empowers them and wants them to liberate their souls and themselves and achieve as much as they could in 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 advancing and promoting themselves and the society around them. Because the measure of a successful Muslim is that when one dies, how much good did they leave behind? How much difference did they make in the world? Positive difference as opposed to negative. So if you're afraid to live, if you don't know your capabilities, if you are being tied up uh, in your mind, then you're not going to be productive. And for me, the first step is to liberate the minds uh, about what Islam says. The action then will follow.
1: Yes, and now one of the things that you talk about in the first chapter of the book is the notion of authenticity. So I was hoping you could perhaps explain how you understand authenticity in relation to the diaspora specifically um, in the context uh, that you discuss as the responsiveness of Islamic jurisprudence and the Islamic tradition to changing history, cultures, events, and so on.
0: It's not only in the diaspora. I mean, if you look at world events today, if you look at Daesh, You know, where is Islam in Daesh? Daesh is what you call ISIL or Mm. ISIS, you know. Where is Islam there? About every single thing they do is in direct conflict with an Islamic major principle. How could they convince people to join them unless these people didn't know their religion properly? Unless they used their emotions as opposed the emotions of the youngsters instead of their minds and their true beliefs. There is a lot of effort within and outside the United States to develop theories about Islam that seem attractive and that are in direct conflict with the heart of Islam, with the heart of its message. I cannot do much about what's happening in the world. I'm a woman's voice Uh, in a forest of male voices, many of whom we're finding out are operating not on the basis of faith, but on the basis of power. Sometimes money is power, sometimes position is power, or military force is power. That is not good for anybody. It's never good for women. War And and conflict is never good for women. And we're seeing what's happening to women, for example, right now in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, and in in a lot of other places on on this earth. And to be done in the name of religion, when Islam is particularly uh, uh, sensitive to women's rights And women's well-being is very sad indeed. So, and what we need is authentic voices who are going to go back and say, I'm not doing this so that I will be very rich very quickly or very powerful very quickly. uh, but I'm doing this because I truly am a believer and I want to help my sisters. I want to help my ummah or the society. Okay, if you're going to do that, then you're going to do the kind of jurisprudence uh, that I do rightly or wrongly, meaning not all my conclusions are necessarily right, but I certainly try as a logician to come to the right conclusion. But what you see sometimes, it's arguments that are being spun with conclusions that absolutely make no sense are, are being offered to a society, uh, uh which is not very, uh, adept at critiquing arguments because they do not know their Quran, they do not know the background of their religion, and so they will buy these conclusions. But, but the whole argument that is being spun is really because guess what? It is pleasing. Uh, to some party political uh, political institution or another we 're seeing a lot of that, and it 's very shameful because it 's really harming the ummah, the people uh, who are Muslims. therefore, we need to have authentic analysis, whatever the conclusions are, follow them to their end. you know you and I are philosophers, and we know how that works. Um, Just be authentic about your logic and about your project, but also authentic in how you get to it by making sure that everything you say is founded on something that either the Qur'an or the Prophet or a major scholar before you said. I don't want people to say that I am like weaving in a a new theory or in uh, something completely different from what they know. What I am putting together basically is some is nothing that nobody said before me is nothing that is not in the quran and or the uh, or the prophetic uh, statements but nobody has put them together in the way i do because they did not want the message to reach the population uh, in that way um, so if i'm going to be critiqued and when i get critiqued as i said the person critiquing me will have the Important task of proving that what I'm saying is wrong, and the only way of doing that is to follow the logic. Which premise is he going to contest? The promise from premise from the Quran, the prom, uh, premise from the Hadith. Hadith. What about the logic? You know, I'm certainly take great care to make sure that the logic follows. So, what are they going to contest there? What is happening instead is that. Many of these people uh, who could comment on the work in the community are, you know, not reading it. I've called some of them and asked, I said, have you read my book? And one common answer I get and listen to this. No, I I, I couldn't read it, but I gave it to my wife. Mm. And so I'm thinking, so if the book is written by a woman, so the wife reads it. And so why am I reading men's books (laughs) by that logic? It's really funny. Um, I think that's why I'm saying the new generation. The old generation is caught up in various habits of patriarchy and an oral tradition as opposed to a written tradition where they read a lot of books and critique them, even if they're written by men. But the new generation was born and raised in the U.S., These people are going to read my book. They already came to me before the book to ask me when they wanted to get married new, what sort of marriage contracts we should have, et cetera, et cetera, which is not the topic of this book, but is the topic of the second volume that I'm writing right now. So the young, young people have more inquisitive minds and they have greater readiness to discover what the religion really means, especially if it is consistent with, the life they live, and the society they are in. According to the patriarchal custom that they were raised under, um, they have a lot of tension between the life at home and the public life, but not, not the picture that I'm drawing.
1: Right, and it strikes me that one of the kind of most important things that you're doing in this book, and it carries all throughout, is, as you put it, to separate what you are cultural or patriarchal influences from the authentic principles of jurisprudence and engagement with the Quran and engagement with, uh, with the Hadith and so on, um, that, that strikes me as kind of a central aspect of what your own project is in the book in response to all these other histories.
0: And that has to be done very carefully. And let me tell you why. Because the Quran, part of the message of the Quran is to celebrate all cultures. Islam did not... Get revealed so that everybody will dress the same, talk the same, believe, you know, completely the same things. Uh, of course, there are uh, basic beliefs that everybody should be, uh, should adhere to. But if you come from a certain culture which has certain customs that are not inconsistent with the basics of the religion, Islam celebrates it. So I, uh, myself being from Lebanon, I have certain customs not inconsistent with Islam. I can still celebrate those and keep them. And my Pakistani friend could keep hers and so on and so forth. But if they are inconsistent with the basic values of Islam, then they, you know, Islam supersedes them. So We have to understand, therefore, that when we critique culture, we critique those aspects of culture that are inconsistent with the basic values of religion, such as patriarchy, which says that men are superior to women. There is nothing in the Quran that says that. There is a lot in every culture that says that. And we need to get uh, rid of that cultural burden and live the life that the Quran tells us we can live, which that which is that the men believers, the male believers, and the female believers, we are each other's wellies, which means we look over uh, for we, we look out for each other, we help each other. Uh, if somebody goes wrong, we straighten them out. But that goes both ways, not just one way. We are we are uh, uh, responsible for each other. Where in the Quran does it say that men are superior to women? Well, of course, you've read the book. I was uh, visiting a foreign country and I asked the women that question and they gave me the verse and they said, This is where it says it. And so I took 20 minutes, I apologize for the shortness of time, and analyzed that verse and showed them that it doesn't say that at all. And that verse, by the way, is a chapter, uh, is treated in a chapter of the book.
1: Yes, and I want to make sure that we get to talk about that because it's so important. But before we do that, I was hoping you could perhaps describe as we move into the second chapter of the book, um, the three basic principles that you describe as embedded within the Quran, Um, equality of all human beings, diversity, and gradualism. So could you perhaps explain how those particular principles are expressed and developed?
0: Yes. I think the most important one and the basic principle for being a Muslim uh, has to do with the principle of Tawheed. There is only one God. God has no partners. He is unlike anything. There's nothing like him. We human beings are not like God. Okay? Um, And he is a supreme being who has created the earth, and he tells us that we created all human beings from the same nafs or spirit. So you have a supreme being who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, who is to whom we all uh, pray and we are obedient. But on earth, we're all equal. Nobody is going to pull a divine game on us, telling us that they are better than we are or that we owe them, you know, uh, un- you know, unreasonable obedience. And by unreasonable obedience, I mean, I obey traffic lights. lights. There is nothing the matter with it. But I will not o- obey a fascist dictator. This is the distinction I'm drawing. So we are told in an important verse in the Quran that God has created us all from a single spirit And into male and female, okay? Male and female come from the same origin. There is no Adam's rib. Uh, Eve is not a secondary being to Adam. We're all created from the same spirit or soul. And from those two, the gender two, God made from us nations and tribes. So the verse talks about gender, about race ethnicity. And in another verse, it, takes, it talks even about uh, diversity in languages. And then it explains that God created all these differences on earth, not so that we go quarrel with each other or fight with each other and figure who is a superior power to the other, because this whole nation, notion of superiority is a game, which I call in the book, the game of Satan. We, we can talk about it uh, another time, but. We were all created diverse so that we get to know each other and enjoy each other and celebrate each other. That's the world that God wants us to have. Not a world of conflict, but a world of peace, understanding, mercy, compassion. And in fact, I should tell you that at the current uh, time, uh, as I write my second book on the marriage contract, one of the major conditions in Islamic contract law is that you don't enter a contract which in its very uh, uh, conditions would lead to conflict. There is a huge aversion to conflict in Islam because exactly of Such verses as the one I told you, God created us so that we celebrate our differences, so that we show compassion to each other. For example, God created male and female, and it says in the Quran, and put affection, mercy, and tranquility between them. That's the relation that ought to be among husband and wife, not a power relationship of who is going to subdue whom. So, uh, that principle is very fundamental, and as you see from the book, a lot follows from it. Uh, it has usually been understood by uh, the common uh, person as, yes, I believe in one God, but they didn't really follow the thread of what tawhid or the unicity of God leads to in your uh, personal life. Now, the other principle uh, you mentioned um, could you remind me of it, please?
1: Uh, gradualism. Uh,
0: gradualism, um, it's the philosophy of the Quran. If you look at the Quran, it, is, it was revealed 1,500 years ago in a desert society, which, you know, was surrounded by a Persian empire, which was a lot more sophisticated, and a Roman empire, which was Byzantine empire, which was also a lot more sophisticated technologically, etc., These simple people, Islam was revealed to them. They were not so simple. I mean, their life was simple. Um, And it was going to change a lot in their lives, much of which existed also in the surrounding countries. For example, slavery. For example, uh, patriarchy. Uh, for example you know going to war in order to uh, uh, achieve superiority how are you going to the treatment of the poor the treatment of any person who is uh, vulnerable like the orphans or the disabled how do you deal with all of this how do you change society completely so that so that it is now more in uh, in line with the islamic values and the quran's approach is look, it's going to happen, but it's going to happen from the inside. We're not going to say that the prophet is going to be the dictator who's going to pass the laws that are going to, you know, you change or we put you in jail. That's not how Islam works. In Islam, we are going to change your mind. You're going to think about things. You are going to rationalize for yourself the message of Islam and ask yourself, how does this work? Um, If you really believe that all humans are equal, then how are we going to deal with the question of gender? Um, How are we going to deal with the question of slavery? Um, Islam, for example, gave great incentives for people to free slaves. These were slaves that were uh, obtained through war. Um, uh, Islam gave uh, great incentives uh, to forgive. For example... You know, you hear that in Islam, it says um, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, yeah, so do the other Abrahamic religions, Judaism and Christianity. But, yep. you know, you don't just take part of a statement or a thought from a religion and say that's what it believes in, because that not, that's not either the full truth in the uh, Christian and Jewish religion. Neither is it in Islam. The very sentence which says, an eye for an eye and a truth for a tooth, that verse continues to say, but to forgive is better. Now, not everybody is able to forgive. So there is a lower denominator beyond which you cannot uh, dip. Uh, that verse, which was, uh, that uh, idea of an eye for an eye, which was first revealed in Judaism, had a very important purpose. In tribal societies, before that revelation, if somebody did something wrong, you went and maybe killed 10 people from his family. There was no proportionality. This was a principle of proportionality. So if you cannot be a very, very, special person who can forgive and who can move beyond these kinds of thoughts, then at least you cannot go beyond uh, the rule of proportionality into creating havoc in the world. But to forgive is better. And in fact, God asked repeatedly in the Quran, how do you expect me to forgive you in the afterlife if you cannot forgive each other in this life? There are a lot of incentives for people to get better. Even um, in the days of the Prophet, before Islam, uh, people uh, uh, drank quite a bit of alcohol. In fact, some of them were probably alcoholic. Uh, And so to come to them and say, look, alcoholism uh, or alcohol is not a good idea. Stop now. It's not going to work. We know that it doesn't work. The rules for uh, prevention of drinking alcohol came over a number of stages until people were able to follow up to the final rule, which says don't drink uh, at all. For example, one of the earlier stages was don't come to pray while you're drunk so you see this is the the whole idea of gradualism is an attempt to move the personal the individual from whatever level you're at to a higher level of humanity vis-a-vis other people on earth if you can do it and also to move societies as a whole over time over generations from a society that looks for revenge, for retributive justice into a society that now understands and seeks restorative justice instead.
1: So another source of law and jurisprudence that you talk about in the book is the particular practice and method of interpretation and work um, that you go through in the particular book that scholars of Islam go through um, that jurisprudence in Islam, the form that it takes. Um, so could you perhaps maybe talk us through what the process, what the particular methods of that process look like? Um, at one point in Chapter 3, you talk about it as reasoning by consensus, reasoning by analogy, and reasoning by determining, determining the purpose of the law.
0: Yes. Fiqh, um, or Islamic jurisprudence, is made up of... Sp- Portions of the logic as we know it and we study it in American schools now, but also it has in it uh, Other factors that are very important one of them is the uh, reasoning by analogy and That is not uh, quite acceptable by everybody Some Muslims reject reasoning by analogy for the same reason that we in uh, philosophy critique it. Uh, Sometimes the analogy is not accurate, so you end up with the wrong results, etc. The Prophet at one point said, uh, and the Hadith, the statement of the Prophet, is very important in Islam. It is the secondary source of Islam after the Qur'an. So these are the two major sources, although we Muslims believe that the Quran is the revealed uh, verse of God, uh, uh, revealed word of God, and it was recorded as it was revealed. It was revealed orally and then recorded. Um, But the Hadith of the Prophet was not recorded contemporaneously. It was recorded much later by people who were his companions or who heard him say what he was saying and often they they reported it in terms of its meaning, i.e. what they understood the Prophet to say as opposed to the words of the Prophet, exactly, verbatim. So we need to uh, be concerned about this fact so that not every verse we look at, or not every hadith we look at uh, by the Prophet is one that we could take at face value. Sometimes we have to evaluate it, and I'm sure we'll get to this point later on in the conversation. But the Prophet once uh, is reported to have said, um, my Ummah, Muslim people, will never agree on on a wrong. Um, In other words, he had such uh, confidence in the values and morals of the Muslim people that if they all agree on something, it must be good. Okay, That became the basis of the uh, jurisprudential rule about consensus. If all the Ummah agrees on something, then it must be right. We can we can all stand behind it. The problem with that rule is that the question arose is, what do you mean the consensus of all the Ummah? Like at one point the whole Ummah was in Medina or in Mecca in Saudi Arabia today, Saudi Arabia of today, the Arabian Peninsula of the past. They were all there and it was pretty easy to find out what their consensus was. Uh, in fact, they did some kind of even balloting where they would knock on the door and ask people questions. Uh, for example, when they were uh, electing a leader, uh, they would take their vote. But what do you do today when we are all over the world, billions of them? How do you determine consensus? Well, over the centuries, jurists said, oh, it's not the consensus of all the people. It's the consensus of the, of the jurists. Really? Now we've moved from the whole ummah to the jurists, okay? And then how do you determine consensus? Like if one jurist said something, is he agreeing or is he not? Uh, What if, you know, what about the women who slowly were driven out from being jurists? They have no voice in the process. So whatever these male jurists agree is their consensus. That is the consensus of the ummah. So that that kind of uh, standard now needs to be restudied and revised and opened up. The same thing with some of the others that you talked about. Um, I mentioned that because women in Islam are entitled completely to full rights in jurisprudence like anybody else. God created us with our own mind. He didn't make us share some man's mind. You know, we have our own brain. And so we are also entitled to engage in jurisprudence. How is it that we were kicked out from that arena when in fact, most of the hadith was transmitted by women the prophetic hadith that many of uh, many women jurists, jurists and scholars taught the major scholars of islam uh, who established the four schools of sunni islam today and and uh, probably more What happened since then? How come women ended up being in the home, uh, restricted to a very private life and disconnected from the public life? I think one of the major uh, uh, moves in that uh, direction was that to claim that uh, to to restrict the uh, education of women. The education of women is very important because if you don't, you're not educated if you if your education is very simple even how do you go into evaluating jurisprudential arguments you can't and so and how on what basis can somebody come and tell me that women should be prohibited from getting an education when the prophet himself said you know uh that education is the duty of every male and female muslim That is, we are all not only entitled to learning, but it's our duty uh, to get an education. Why? Because we have to be uh, thinking beings, not automatons, that somebody tells us what to do and we do it. And that's where it has been the great injustice against women.
1: Now, in the the book, I think a very good example of that is your detailed interpretation where you uh, respond to the argument that often gets made that Eve is somehow created as inferior to Adam or is created derivatively from his rib or or something like that under the influence of these patriarchal cultural uh, processes. So could you perhaps maybe walk us through the way that you respond to those sorts of arguments in the book?
0: Yeah, for example... Uh you know, when you look at the creation story, there is nothing in the Qur'an at all which says that Eve was created from Adam's rib. In fact, Eve's name as Eve does not appear in the Qur'an. So where did these stories come from? Okay, they come from... Uh, interaction of religions such as Christianity and Judaism Uh, in the Bible uh, there is one mention one story of creation out of two that mentions the rib story but also there is a statement about rib that comes from the prophetic hadith now the interesting part about the hadith of the prophet which was reported in several ways is that first of all it doesn't mention Eve, it's not about Eve, it's about women, and secondly, it doesn't say uh, that women uh, are created from ribs, but that they are, I am trying to remember, like a rib. there is an analogy there. Thirdly, the analogy to the rib is not an analogy of being created as part of somebody else. The analogy of the rib is that the rib is one of the harder parts of the body that protects the heart, the lungs, etc. That interpretation was not taken. Instead, it was combined with the traditional interpretation before Islam that Eve was created from Adam's rib to uh, reach the conclusion that therefore Eve is a secondary being. That is not true in Islam. I uh, walked through the various uh, forms of the hadith in the book and whoever is interested could take uh, a look at them. But in the end, I mean, even scholars like uh, major scholars of Islam said, "Look." Uh, The Quran says male and female were created of the same kind, the same spirit. So you cannot go and say that God created Eve from the rib of Adam. If God could create Adam from nothing, from spirit, why couldn't he create Eve initially also from spirit? Why does he have to go and create her from Adam's rib? So some of the major jurists in Islam make fun of this thesis. Nobody talks about it. There are many things that older jurists uh, who are highly respectable, who have talked about these things, they never get quoted. What instead we see is selective quotations from people who have taken positions, you know, males who have taken positions that are patriarchal, repeating each other's words without even discussing them critically. So what I'm doing is just going back to the foundations, going back to scholars such as Razi, Al-Ghazali, Al-Bukhari, you know, everybody. And all these statements are there, just waiting for me to pick them out and say, look, guys, this is what they said. It's not what I'm saying. So why are we sticking to the view that, you know, when women think they're created of somebody's rep, they're gonna think that they are inferior to that somebody, but we don't have that inferiority issue in Islam because men and women are created of the same soul. If you remember in the book, there is even a more um, um, troubling hadith, which women came to me and asked me to please write about it, which says that women, uh, if if because of God's supremacy, if it was permitted for anyone. To um, bow or prostrate themselves to another, because in Islam you only prostrate yourself to God. If it was possible to do it for another, then the woman would have, uh, 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 should have done it for her husband. That's attributed to the Prophet. That hadith has so many problems in its authenticity, so many problems in the chain of tr- transmission, in the matan, which means the content. That you know, if it if it was about any other topic, it probably would have been neglected, and yet we see a lot or rejected, and yet we see a lot of men uh, brandishing this hadith in the face of the women who come to us and ask, how could this be true?
1: And so one aspect of that particular, um, the interpretation of that particular hadith, which for the listeners is in chapter seven of the book, is this involved, um, critique of the authenticity of it and the authenticity of the different versions of it that one gets. Now, there's a second aspect to the critique, to the critique, um, which is contrasting that particular, uh, the interpretation, the patriarchal interpretation of it, with the more general principles of Islam. So I'm wondering if you could perhaps explain that aspect of the critique, which seems to me to work in tandem with this critique of its authenticity.
0: Yes, Um, that critique uh, you arrive to when you start discussing the content of any hadith, not the chain of attribution, whether it is reliably Um, transmitted to us through a chain of reliable people. But what does the hadith say? What does the hadith say? And no hadith can possibly be accepted that conflicts with the message of the Quran, with what the Quran states. Okay? That's because as I said, the hadith is it throws, sheds light upon the Quran. It doesn't contradict it. It's the secondary source. The Prophet's words were there to explain the Quran to us, not to contradict it. So, if you come up with an understanding of the Hadith which conflicts with the Quran, for example, with the message of equality of all beings or a message of uh, opposite to Tawheed, which is the unity of God, etc., something is wrong with your interpretation. You have to go back to the board. To, uh, to, the, uh, to zero and start again, because the hadith does not contradict the Quran, the hadith explains it, and if you don't get to that result, then something is wrong. Now, I do want to talk to you a little bit about the interaction of Islamic law and uh, positive law. Yes, please do. So, for example, if you look at the uh, family codes in Muslim countries. And I've done this extensively in an article of mine. You can find all my articles on Karama's website, K-A-R-A-M-A-H dot org. Uh, And there, for example, uh, well, laws change. And I remember when I started doing my research, at that time, uh, you could find in some of these laws um, statements such as, the woman uh cannot work outside the home or cannot work without the uh, permission of her husband. This has changed over time. The question is what changed it? The answer is the economic situation more importantly is how did it change? If God said that, if you really believe that Islam says that the woman cannot work without the permission of her husband if she really if you really believe that, how did you somehow you know find your way to saying that she has, the, you know, now the right to work. Um, what, what is the theory? So that's when you start finding out that the jurists themselves, the male jurists, modify their positions in light of the time by going to other less patriarchal situations that would allow them to meet the economic conditions and the needs of the population. So if they can do it, we can do it too. For example, you know, this whole idea about the woman uh not being able to get into a marriage without uh a wali that is a so-called I'll, for briefly i'll say it's not an accurate translation but let's say guardian so there is a guardian who is supposed to sign her marriage contract and agree to her marriage uh of course she needs to agree too what is the story there i mean why does she need somebody like her father or her uncle, or, you know, somebody senior uh, in, her, male, uh, in her family who is responsible for her, uh, to, you know, by law, to be there to allow her uh, to marry? Why can't she just say, I want to marry so-and-so and marry him? And that is, again, a jurisprudential interpretation. Not the wali himself, but the interpretation of the role of the wali is highly, highly patriarchal. The wali is supposed to be, you know, a senior guy in your male person in your family who has your interest at heart, who would be advising you about what you're about to do. There is no uh, oppression or suppression or uh, force in the role. You can, you don't have to accept what he says if you do not want to, and you can go ahead and get married. And that's what Abu Hanifa said. Abu Hanifa said, "Look, in Islam." We give the woman her full financial rights. 1500 years ago, according to Islam, women could own uh, property, they could enter contracts, they could dissolve contracts, they could sell, they could buy completely on their own. And when they marry, they keep their maiden name because they don't dissolve into the entity of the husband and nor do their finances dissolve into the finances of the husband. He may not touch her money and she can do with her money as she pleases, he still has to support her because she's made a big sacrifice by accepting to be married and going into marital life and having children. He has to take care of all of that. Now, in reality, we don't see this on the ground. We see males putting their hands, you know, taking over the finances of females, whether they are husbands or fathers, or whatever you can think of, and even some jurists develop jurisprudence that allow legally the husband to prevent the woman from totally being free in the way she handles her money. Now, if we are going to get rid of patriarchal influences in societies, we need to re-examine these issues. We need to redefine, for example, the notion of Wali. We need to give him advisory capacity as opposed to being the uh, uh, person in charge of the life of the woman. Abu Hanifa said, how could we give the woman full financial rights and trust her with her money? And when it comes to an issue as important as her life, we don't allow her to make a decision there. He didn't think that made sense. He even said, And also, if she enters the marriage and in her marriage contract she wants to put a condition or a stipulation that if she's not happy within the marriage she can end it, you should give her that power. Because otherwise she will not enter the marriage. So there are a lot of things in the jurisprudence that Muslims And especially women do not know about. Only yesterday I was talking to someone and he didn't know that women can leave the marriage just as men can. Women can divorce their husbands through a process called khula, among other processes. Women have more than one process. He didn't know what khula was. Neither do the women. And for the longest time, women were told by jurists that khula meaning when the woman looks at the man and says, I do not want you anymore, I'm leaving, the marital gift you gave me is yours, here it is again, and goodbye. For many, many centuries, this was interpreted to require the husband's consent, that she could only do it with the consent of the husband. This was never a prophetic requirement. This was never a, a jurisprudential requirement originally in Islam, because according to the Prophet, in the incident which established the form of khula, he told the woman, Do you want to return the marital gift to your husband? She said, Yes, I will, and more. He said, No, you return the gift and no more. And then he divorced her. Women do not know that, many of them. And furthermore, When you make the uh, consent of the husband necessary for the divorce, you see cases like we saw before the laws were changed, where the husband would ask for a lot of money so that the woman would buy his consent. This law was changed in Egypt. It was fought uh, very heavily by men who said, oh, if you give the women the right of khula, then all the women of Egypt will leave their husbands. That's nonsense. Women are not staying in a marriage because they are all prisoners. Some don't like the marriage and some do, and the khula rules passed, and there are intact families in Egypt. So, this shows how there is fear about empowering women to have control over their own lives, even though in Islam every human being, male or female, has control over their own lives.
1: Thank you. Now, before we close, as I've taken up plenty of your time already, I was wondering if there's anything we haven't discussed that
0: you'd like to highlight for the listeners. Let me think a second about this. What I'm troubled by these days is the view of Islam that is being propagated by violent groups who are using Islam or religion, because other religions have done it, it has happened to other religions as well. But we're using religion, in this case Islam, as a veil to cover their very uh, earthly uh, goals. And I am as worried. That Muslim youngsters do not see through that as I am worried about the Islamophobia in parts of our society. It is not, and I want people to understand, I'm not here to preach about Islam and make you love it. I am not a preacher. I don't care what you think in the end about Islam, what you want to do with the message of Islam. Because you are free, and in the Quran it says um, there is no coercion in religion. You don't you don't like Islam, that's your business. You don't like religion, that's also your business. But it's important not to be unfair towards billions of Muslims who live a decent life, who adhere to morals similar to those of others in our community, and who are being. Um, who are suffering because of some events that are taking place here and elsewhere that are highly political and not religious. I would hope that the listeners, whether they are Muslim or non-Muslim, would at least give the chance to fairly treat others and think of their ways of thinking as humanitarian, as peaceful, and that this is not um, propaganda, because I don't care about that. <laughs> I, what I care about is that in the end, we Muslims, we Christians, we Jews, and we and non-believers all believe that this earth has to be a peaceful earth where we can differ and we let a million flower bloom, without having conflict am, among each other, and without trying to assert superiority one over the other.
1: Thank you, and I mean, for, for me personally at least, I was able to learn a great deal and do at least a little bit of that work of engagement due specifically to this book. So I hope that that is the case for other readers as well into the future. Um,
0: now, lo- you
1: mentioned briefly Um, a couple times during the interview that this is the first part of a longer project and that you're currently working on the second part. So perhaps to close, you can maybe tell us some about the book you're currently working on.
0: Yeah, the second volume is turning out to be difficult because it's dealing with the concept of contracts. What are contracts in Islam? And the reason I need to lay that foundation is because I want to get into the marriage contract and figure out what everybody is saying about what needs to be uh, to go into the marriage contract. What are its uh, foundations? What is prohibited or permitted in the contract? I'm seeing that a lot of this is also patriarchal. So. A lot of men and women, especially in the young generation, come to me and say, look, we want to have a gender equitable contract. What does it look like? They're all, they've been waiting for it for 20 years because <laughs> I've been lecturing about this for 20 years. They're going to have it, God willing, because I'm finding out a lot of interesting things. Simply by going to the foundation, things I'm discovering things I didn't know. I'm finding out that you know patriarchy was very strict in matters that was to its advantage, and very loose in matters that were not. Um, the women's point of view has not been taken. I found actually case law in parts of the Muslim world, which are so important. That you know, why don't we? These are medieval case law, which give the give the women a lot of rights within the marriage, financial rights, uh, um, freedoms, etc. That nobody is talking about today. How could w- Muslim women in medieval times work and earn and be partners, business partners with their husbands, and do all sorts of things and be good Muslims? And today? It's not happening because women feel that they're all tied up. We need to cut that rope and free uh, the women to really realize their potential within a a marital relationship and within the public sphere as well. Women have to blossom and, and, and Islam gives them that right.
1: Well, we will look forward to reading the second volume of this series very much. Uh, Dr. Aziza Al-Hibri, thank you very much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics.
0: Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it.